Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Merry Christmas, church. Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here today. And I'm sure we have uh, some Grinches in the room this morning, maybe a Scrooge or two. But as for me, I love Christmas. Like the decorations and the music and the traditions and being with the people you love, the whole nine yards. But I know there's some pretty strong opinions in the room right now about how Christmas should be properly celebrated, right? And so let's just go ahead and get those opinions on out in the open. We're gonna take a poll, have some audience participation participation by show of hands, all right? What is your favorite Christmas drink? If you say eggnog, raise your hand. Eggnog? Wow, not many. Okay, hot chocolate? Anybody hot chocolate? Wow, okay. Uh, I'm an eggnog guy, personally, all right? Uh, What's the next one? Um, What do you like to decorate best? Christmas cookies? Raise your hand. Okay, Uh, who would say gingerbread house? Anybody? All right. Let's go um, classic Christmas movies now. Who would say Miracle on 34th Street? Anybody? It's a Wonderful Life. Excellent, there you go. Now, (laughs) passionate, love it. Um, Confession, I've never actually seen Miracle on 34th Street, so I have no idea. Okay, wow, judgy this morning, are we? All right, excellent. What's your favorite Christmas movie to laugh at? Who'd say Elf? Very good, hope you find your dad, okay. Um, Who'd say Home Alone? That's right, I'm a Kevin McAllister guy. Give it to me all the way. All right, Um, Christmas music, what album are you playing? Mariah Carey, who's brave enough to say it? There it is, all right. Justin Bieber, got any believers around? All right. Now the correct answer on that one, of course, is C, none of the above. Give me Frank Sinatra, okay? Okay, all right, very good. Last one, here we go. Tell me what's in your living room, fake tree. Where's my fake tree people at, okay, yeah? Any real tree people, like, yeah, there's my Christmas people right there, excellent. Excellent, very good. Now, my wife, Rebecca, grew up as a real tree person. She's from small town Kansas, and uh, she'd tell the story of how her dad would go get their real Christmas tree. Now, listen, I love my in-laws, I do, but my father-in-law and Clark Griswold have more than a few things in common (laughs) if you get where I'm going right now, okay? Like... And so Rebecca will tell the story about her dad. They just like throw them all in the car and they just go start driving around till he saw a tree he liked on the side of the road. He'd get out, cut the thing down, take it home. Ta-da! That's like Christmas in Kansas for you, right? You know? Um, But to this day, the most amazing Christmas tree that I've ever seen had to be in New York City. I was in high school the first time I got to go to New York, walking around. It's just magical this time of the year, the lights and the people and the hustle and the bustle. And we're like retracing Kevin McAllister's footsteps after the second time he defeated Harry and Marv, you remember, you know? And then all of a sudden, boom, there it is, 80 feet tall, 50,000 lights. It's the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Just absolutely. Absolutely incredible. And if you pay attention when you're there at the Rockefeller Center looking at this Christmas tree, there's something else that sits there outside the Rockefeller Center all year round. It's a massive statue, four stories high, of Atlas. Uh, Maybe you remember the story of Atlas from Greek mythology. The story was that Zeus was punishing Atlas, and so he condemned him to carry the heavens for all of eternity. And so Atlas sits there year round, right in the heart of New York City, carrying everything on his shoulders because this is the way of the world and he's surrounded by the world's most influential banks and law firms and media companies and maybe, just maybe, you feel a little bit like that today. 
Like the weight of the expectations from work and family and friends this time of year, not to mention your own hopes and dreams on your shoulders. And if you really stop to think of it, sometimes the weight of all that can almost crush you. And over the last few weeks as a church, we've been walking through this story from the Bible that happened in the little town of Bethlehem. And of course, we're used to hearing stories from Bethlehem this time of year. But this story actually took place a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it's from the Old Testament book of Ruth. So it's a story about this girl, like surprise, named Ruth, very aptly named, right? But the main character of the story is actually Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. And as you read through this story, it takes 20 minutes to read, it's four little short chapters, it's really a story of tragedy for Ruth and Naomi. Naomi, she ends up far from home, she loses her husband, she loses both of her sons, one of whom was Ruth's husband, and, and so it's the story of how these two widows try to put the pieces back together and deal with the pain in their life. And as we've been walking through Ruth and Naomi's story, we've asked the questions of them that we often ask of the pain in our own lives. We've asked, okay, where is God when it hurts? And how will God provide? And how does God speak? Um, but today, I'd like to wrap up Ruth and Naomi's story in Ruth chapter four, just in a few moments together, by asking the question, what is God doing? Uh, because maybe in your hard moments, maybe you've felt that before. Like when you feel like Naomi, or like sometimes like, like I've felt like, like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, it's all up to you, and in that moment when you're confused and you're bitter and you're stressed and you're tired and you're anxious and you're worn out and you can't see the path forward, in that moment, maybe you've asked before, like, God, what are you doing? What is God doing? Um, if you're a guest with us today, we're really honored that you're here, genuinely thrilled. Our mission as a church is to help you become fully alive in Jesus. Because Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, if you're honest with yourself, I think if you're anything like me, the life we often settle for is so much less than that. We settle for lives of busyness and we're in a hurry and we're distracted and we're bored. And yet Jesus said he came to offer us a life that is more deep and rich and satisfying than that, to be fully alive and so to be fully alive, then, it means three things. It means that God made you for life with Jesus, in community, and on mission. With Jesus, in community, and on mission. And, and maybe you hear me say that, and, and you think, all right, cool preacher, sounds great for somebody else, but that's not me. Like, that's not my experience. That's not my story. And it wasn't Ruth's story either, or especially Naomi's story. If you go back to the beginning, and, and you asked her, like, Naomi, fully alive? And she'd say, no, like, I'm, I'm empty. Life with Jesus, Naomi wasn't even sure that God could be trusted. Life in community, all of Naomi's people were dead. She was all alone. Life on mission, what, what purpose could her life possibly have now? And so she's stuck asking this question, what is God doing? And she's trying to manipulate her own circumstances and control her own destiny and trying to put the pieces together and, and find the way forward. But somehow, somehow, in Ruth chapter four, the story changes. And we'd seen hints of it all along, that at the beginning, right when Naomi thought that God had abandoned her, she gets this amazing commitment from her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she thinks, okay, well, maybe God is up to something after all. And then these two widows, neither of them have jobs or kids. They have no way of providing for themselves. They don't know where their next meal's gonna come from, but then God orchestrates these circumstances, and they run into this wealthy farmer named Boaz who is able to provide for their present needs and then they find out that Boaz might also be able to provide for their future security because they find out that Boaz is eligible as a redeemer. 
Now, nerd out with me here for just a minute. The concept of a redeemer was something that God had hardwired into the Jewish law to take care of the weak. So like if a man went into debt and he was gonna have to sell off his property, his closest male relative was what's called a redeemer. He would be allowed to buy that property before anybody else had access to it in order to keep that property from being sold out of the family. Or if a man died and he left a widow but he didn't have any kids, nobody to receive his inheritance. His closest male relative would be a redeemer who could actually marry his widow, father a child, so that that man could have an heir and his family line and name would continue. And so Boaz, Ruth and Naomi find out he's not just some wealthy farmer, he's like a relative of theirs. He's eligible to be their redeemer, to buy Naomi's property and to marry Ruth. But they also find out that there's another guy who's more closely related, so they have to give him a shot to be their redeemer first. Now, you'll wanna remember this, because in order to be a redeemer, you had to have three things. A redeemer had to be close enough, had to be closely enough related. A redeemer had to be rich enough to buy the property and and provide for a wife. And the the redeemer had to be willing. He wasn't legally obligated to do this. It was a choice. And so Boaz, he goes to this other guy who's more closely related. He says, hey, do you want to redeem Ruth and Naomi? And this other guy, he, he is close enough and he is rich enough, but he's not the third thing. He's not willing. He says, no, that's too much of a risk. And so Boaz is now the eligible redeemer. He says, yes, I'll do it. He purchases Naomi's property. He buys Ruth. The Lord helps them have a little baby. They have a baby boy. And it's like, ta-da, everybody lives happily ever after. It's a fairy tale ending to a Hallmark love story. We're happy for Ruth and Boaz because they get married. We're really happy for Naomi at the end of the story because she had lost everything. But one of the last scenes in the book is Naomi, this old woman, cradling her grandson, this infant in her arms. And we realize, oh, that... That little baby right there, that's more than just a baby. That's seven pounds, six ounces of hope. And so we ask the question again, what what was God doing all along in these four little chapters when Naomi thought that the weight of the world was on her shoulders and she had to do it and she had to figure it out? We see that actually God was at work the whole time to bring her life from bitter to sweet, from empty to full, to make her fully Alive, And she does end life with God and he can be trusted and she does live life in community. She has people again and she does live life on mission. She's given a purpose now with her grandson. God's will for Naomi was for her to be fully alive and that's God's will for you too. And so if I could step into Naomi's story or if I could step into your story today, I'd say, hey, Atlas, you don't have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. In fact, you can't. But you can trust the one who can. All throughout the book of Ruth, the narrator of the story never actually mentions God, but God was there the whole time, working behind the scenes, weaving everything together toward his good purposes. Only his hands are strong enough to do that. Your hands aren't strong enough. My hands are strong enough. But God's hands are. In fact, the Bible, the Bible talks about just how strong God's hands are. Um, In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, it says that God measures out the waters in the hollow of his hand. Hold out your hand in front of you right now and cup your hand a little bit. If I poured some water into your hand right now, on average, you could probably hold about 100 milliliters of water in your hand. Just a few dribbles, right? But the Bible says God measures out the waters in the hollow of his hand. Do you know how big that is? Um, The average storm cloud can hold 100,000 tons of water. 
That's a lot of water. And that's just one cloud in one storm. And every day on planet Earth, there's an average of 45,000 thunderstorms. That's just the water in the clouds. If you took the Great Lakes and if you tipped the Great Lakes up and you poured them out, the water in the Great Lakes would cover the continental United States over seven feet deep. The entire continental U.S., that's a lot of water. And that's not even counting the 328 million cubic miles of water in our oceans. And yet God, the Bible says, measures out the water in the hollow of his hand. Can you imagine God creating the world? Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Indian Ocean. He flicks the water off his fingertips. Boom, Great Lakes, you know. <laughs> That same verse, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, um, says that God marks off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. Stretch your hand out now. Stretch your hand out. See how far you can stretch your fingers. If you're good, maybe you can reach an octave on the piano. If you're really good, maybe some of you can palm a basketball. Like you can measure off a few inches with the breadth of your hand, but God marks off the heavens. Do you know how big the sky is? Um, the distance from us to the sun is 93 million miles. 93 million miles from us to the closest star. Now, if we took that 93 million miles and we represented it with the thickness of just one piece of paper, that thin little sliver, that represents 93 million miles, it would take a stack of paper 75 feet high to reach from us to the next closest star. And that's just one little star in one little galaxy. If you wanted to count all the stars in our galaxy, our little corner of the universe, you could count three stars every second, 24 hours a day, and it would take you a millennium. It would take you a thousand years just to count the stars in our little galaxy, and there are millions more galaxies, and yet God marks off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. His hands are big enough to hold you. And so if you've ever felt like Naomi, if you've ever felt like I felt like sometimes the weight of the world's on your shoulders that you gotta do it, you gotta carry it, you gotta figure it all out. And you've asked the question before, like, God, what are you doing? And especially at Christmas time, right? Because this is the time of year we're supposed to hope for love and joy and, and hope and peace, but all too often, December 25th is just another day, isn't it? And relationships are still hard and hearts are still broken and loved ones still die and wars still happen and anxiety and stress still creep in, and, and God, what are you doing? And I wonder if maybe when we ask that question, I wonder if today the question God might be asking back to us is, even if you don't understand what I'm doing, will you choose to trust? Will you choose to trust that my hands are big enough to carry all of it? Will you trust that my hands are big enough to carry you? Will you trust that my hands are strong enough to weave together all the events of your life and all the stories in the cosmos and knit them together in the grand tapestry of my redemptive purposes for your good and for my glory? Will you trust that my hands are big enough? So what is God doing? Uh, we catch a little hint of it at the end of Ruth's story in chapter four. Um, the book ends with a family tree because we see Ruth and Boaz, they have this baby boy. They name him Obed. And we see Obed's family tree to end the book. I don't know if you're into genealogies. It's not really my thing. But if you read through it, it's kind of cool. And it says that Obed, he grew up and he had a son named Jesse. And Jesse grew up and he had a son named David. You might recognize that name. David grew up to become a king. We think, oh, that's pretty cool. Like God used Boaz and Ruth to bring a king to the world. That's, that's cool. But there's more. 
Because if you flip over in your Bible a few hundred pages in a few hundred years, you come to the beginning of the New Testament, the, the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And just like Ruth's story ends with a family tree, Jesus' story begins with a family tree. In Matthew chapter one, it's the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. It's this long list of names. And you read down and you'll recognize some of the names, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. And you read on down this long list of names and another set of names all of a sudden just jumps off the page. Right there in the genealogy of Jesus, it says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth and Boaz, God used them in, in their family tree to bring Jesus into the world. If only Ruth and Boaz could only see, like, God, what are you doing? He's using them in their ordinary life and their everyday troubles and their broken dreams and their shattered hopes, not only to bring their baby into the world, but to bring his baby into the world. A thousand years later, in that same little village of Bethlehem. So what is God doing? Will you trust Because only his hands are big enough to do that. Will you trust him? Because this is the same God who used an ordinary family of an ordinary girl, and he he used that family to lead to that moment that we know and love and we heard about earlier when the shepherds are out in the fields and the angels come, and they say, hey, we've got good news of great joy, and it's for everybody, because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he's Christ the Lord. Only God's hands are big enough to do that. Um. Any list of all-time Christmas movies would not be complete without a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? And if you're anything like me, when I watch the Peanuts gang, I'm drawn to Linus. You remember Linus with his striped shirt and his little blue blanket, and everywhere he goes, he's grabbing onto that blanket, and people may try to take it from him, but you're not going to get it. Nothing's going to make him let that blanket go. That blanket is what makes him who he is, right? What's that thing for you? That thing that you hold on to because that's what makes you who you are. And yet if you're honest, sometimes it's more of a burden than a blessing. I don't know, for Naomi, it was the thousand ways she tried to control her own destiny. Maybe for you, it's how you try to control a scenario. Maybe it's your image. Maybe it's your intelligence or your net worth or your anxiety or an addiction or the success of your kids or your resume. What's that thing that you hold on to that that makes you who you are? And yet, if you're honest, the, the tighter you grab onto it, the more it starts to feel like the weight of the world on Atlas's shoulders. But the funny thing is, as you watch A Charlie Brown Christmas, the story changes. Because of all people, It's Linus who stands up on stage to tell the Christmas story. And he quotes those words from Luke chapter two about the shepherds who were out in the fields that night around Bethlehem. And he says, and lo, the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And then he quotes the words that the angel said. But the angel said unto them, fear not, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And if you go watch it, something happens. When Linus says, fear not, when he announces the impact of Jesus' entry into the world, the blanket hits the ground. He drops the blanket. And later on, we see him wrap it around the base of Charlie Brown's skimpy little Christmas tree which is, of course, the symbol of the cross on which Jesus came to die. So what is God doing? He's bringing Jesus. 
He's bringing Jesus into the world for Ruth and for Boaz and for Naomi and for you and for me. And it's an invitation for you to get out from under the weight of the world on your shoulders. He, he, he's trying to let you release that weight that is crushing you because you can't carry it. And he already is. He's trying to let you drop the blanket, let it go, leave it in his hands so that you can become fully alive in him. If you get to go to New York City sometime at Christmas, I hope you do, and you walk around through Midtown Manhattan and you go to the Rockefeller Center there on the west side of Fifth Avenue and you see the statue of Atlas and the big tree, you'll notice that right across the street from Atlas is St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's a big, beautiful church. And if you leave the Rockefeller Center and cross the street and you go into St. Patrick's Cathedral, you'll notice another statue. It's a lot smaller than Atlas, far less impressive. It's only three feet tall. It's a statue of the little child Jesus. Can you see what he's doing? He's at total peace and he's holding the world in his hand. What is God doing? He's offering you the invitation to get out from under the weight of the world on your shoulders. This is God who sent his world-holding son all the way here so that he could carry the weight on your behalf. This is God who offers you the opportunity to become fully alive in him. This is God, the same God who created the world, the same God who was light before there was light, the same God who spoke 10,000 galaxies into existence, the same God who measures out the waters in his hand, and he's using an ordinary, unlikely, everyday hero like Ruth to bring his son into the world so that his son could live a perfect life and show you and I what it means to be fully alive, so that his son could go to the cross and die the death that you and I I deserved and then raise again to new life on the third day and now he has ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father reigning over all things as king of kings lord of lords holding the world in his hands and he's offering you the chance to become fully alive in him this is the baby that we celebrate this is the God that we worship so if you got one of those little candles when you walked in would you get it out now and you can turn it on you can just sit there for this song. We're gonna sing a song together about the night that Jesus was born. And you can hold that candle up. And as you hold that candle, let's worship the God who's holding you. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Redeeming grace. You know, at the end of Ruth's story, when Boaz was gonna redeem her, you remember he had to have those three things. That he had to be close enough, he had to be rich enough, and he had to be willing. That other guy was the first two. He was close enough, he was rich enough, but he wasn't willing. But Boaz was all three. And the message of Christmas is that God sent his son to show you that he is all three. That, that God sent the world-holding second member of the Trinity all the way to a manger in a cattle stall in Bethlehem born to a teenage mother to show you that he's human, that he understands, that he's close enough to redeem you. And he's rich enough. Scripture says that God is rich in mercy. First Peter chapter one says that he's purchased you, he's paid for you, he redeemed you, he bought you so that you could be a part of his family and he bought you not with trivial little currencies like silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. He's rich enough, close enough, he's rich enough 
and he's willing. He's willing. Maybe you've wondered before, like, man, if I, if I went all in, if I, if I really did come to Jesus, like, would, would he turn his back on me? Would he let me down? Would I be left and, and hung out to dry? Like, what does God actually think of me? But the message of the manger and the message of the cross and the message of the empty tomb now and forever is that he's willing and that he wants you to become fully alive in him. And, and in Ruth chapter four, when Ruth and Boaz have this little baby, the people of Bethlehem all gathered around and they pronounced a blessing over this little family. They said, uh, praise the Lord who this day has not left you without a redeemer. And what they meant was, yeah, praise God. He, he brought Ruth and Boaz together. He gave even Naomi a little grandson to carry on her family name. It was a blessing for them, but it's a promise for us because the promise is that that baby in Bethlehem wasn't the greatest gift that God ever gave. The greatest gift that God ever gave was his own baby that he gave in Bethlehem a thousand years later from that same ordinary little family tree. And the message of Christmas is that no matter where you are and no matter how dark the night of your soul, God has not left you without a redeemer. The dawn of redeeming grace has come. And so we celebrate that every week here by receiving communion together. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this moment is for you. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, we're pumped you're here. We'd love to meet you, love to walk with you toward Jesus. You can scan that QR code on the seat right in front of you. It'll have a way for you to get in touch with us. Man, we'd love to hear your story and walk with you to become fully alive in him. But if you are a follower of Jesus today, then you'll know that on the last night of Jesus' life, he gave some bread to his friends. He said, this is my body. He passed around a cup. He said, this is my blood. And he was pointing forward to the way that he would redeem us, how his death on the cross purchased us so that we could be a part of his family. So I'm gonna give you a few moments now to um, just draw your heart into awareness of God's presence and would you just tell him thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you have not left me without a redeemer. And then whenever you're ready, you can receive this little piece of bread on your own and then I'll pray and we'll receive the cup together. And so God, we're thankful that we get to call you Father and that you have not left us alone. We're thankful that your big, strong hands that made the world are those same hands that you willingly chose to be nailed to the cross so that we could be redeemed. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. This is the blood of Christ. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.